We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11 this morning. Acts chapter 11. We'll pick up our reading there through, through the book of Acts. If you'll remember from last week, Acts 10, Peter has his meeting with Cornelius, and we see uh, there there is a response of repentant faith, believing in uh, the gospel message which Peter preached to them. And uh, we see then the first kind of uh, opening up of the gospel to the Gentiles, a reception of it in a uh, recognition of the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's redemptive plan. And uh, then in chapter 11, uh, we'll read uh, how the Jews respond to this as Peter declares all that happened there at Cornelius' household. Acts 11, though, beginning in verse 1. It says there, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has, has, had, <clears throat> has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Or defiled. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could not withstand God? Then they heard, when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose at, over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them... But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, 
who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all that with, with, with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a, great man, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed from Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's look in uh, Genesis, please. Again, we'll turn there to Genesis. I'm not going to have a sermon specifically about uh, the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, uh, in part because we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for, uh, and actually just finished it uh, on Wednesday, and so now I'm in that no man's land of being between books, and I've got to decide which book do I go to next for expositional preaching but um, I have a, a week or two to figure that out on our schedule. Uh, but we've gone through that, and we spent quite some time looking in the last seven or eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew with regard to the Passion Week and then the following days after that in the Great Commission. So I'm going to leave that aside, and uh, we may touch on some of that on Friday as well. But I certainly would encourage you to read uh, those portions, maybe start from Matthew chapter 21, and then on forward this week, uh, seven or eight chapters, seven or eight days to the week. It would be a good thing for you to read on your own if you're not in that section of the Scripture. I know your reading schedule may not have you there at the moment, but uh, certainly uh, a little extra side reading on the off of your schedule wouldn't hurt a soul, would it? Uh, today we're looking at Genesis chapter 26, and... Um, this portion, as I looked at it, I thought, hmm, I'm not so sure. I might have to kind of add in some from chapter 27. But as often the case, once you sit with the text of Scripture for a while, you find some applications and things that just pop out from the text. And so we'll stay with chapter 26 today. The title of our message is The Abrahamic Covenant Reiterated. And you might ask, well, why do you keep talking about this? Well, by the end of the sermon, you'll see again why it's relevant to us down to this very day. The Abrahamic covenant is not just something that God gave to Abraham 4,000 years ago, more or less, but it's something that has continuing relevance in God's covenant and dispensational program all the way up into the present and will into the far future. The Abrahamic covenant will not be completely fulfilled until the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes back to reign over uh, the nation of Israel and rules the nations with us, assisting him with the rod of iron. And so that will be a, a time in which Israel will have its promises fulfilled. And so it's important for us to listen to what God has said. You know, God doesn't operate on our time frame, does he? Well, 4,000 years ago, that's irrelevant. 
Well, that's like four days ago for God. You know, that's just earlier this last week for him. So he doesn't forget things so easily as we do, or, or, or we just don't pay attention to them. So we looked at the Abrahamic covenant starting in chapter 12, and then uh, we saw it repeated over and over again, but now Abraham is gone. And now we're on to Isaac, the son, and he has been made thoroughly familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, but he's going to have it reiterated here a couple of times. In, in, in the chapter, God graciously promises the Abrahamic covenant blessings to Isaac, despite what we're going to see as some falling short uh, from the perfection of faith. He had some ups and downs, Isaac did, as we would expect, because he's a person just like we are, made of the same substance we are, but yet God did not abandon him. Let's read verses 1 through 5 first in chapter 26. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. That was in chapter 12. And you remember how did Abraham respond to that famine? He went down to Egypt. And we read that in 12. And then later on, he had a, not a, a, a famine incident, but another one with the Philistines. Well, so Isaac didn't go to Egypt. He went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, uh, getting closer to Egypt. But then it says, verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him and, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So it says Isaac dwelt in Gerar. So there was this famine. Uh, the first one that it mentions was at least 85 years earlier. Uh, and so Isaac had to move around to find food for his family and his flocks. He landed in the region of the Philistines in Gerar, and the king there was still called by the title Abimelech. Just as decades earlier when Abraham went there, there was a fellow named Abimelech. This is most likely not the same guy. It seems like this is a title. Uh, my father is king, or my father the king is what that means from Hebrew, transliterated or translated rather literally into English. And the Philistines at this time were not as bad to uh, Isaac as later they would be to his offspring. Remember how the Philistines were always arch enemies of, of the Lord's people? Here it wasn't as bad. Things had not developed as much. There hadn't been war between them and so on. So God specifically told him, don't go down to Egypt, you know, looking for food to overcome this famine. Staying here will lead to blessing, not only just general blessing, but the blessings attached to the Abrahamic covenant. And God's promise to him through Abraham had to do with the land, we read about that, the blessing and descendants, as some say, land, seed, and blessing. We talk about seed, of course, it's talking about offspring and future generations. And these are the same terms of the covenant that was issued by God in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Uh, and, and although we don't live under the terms of that covenant, you know, we're not guaranteed land, uh, seed, or descendancy, or blessing, but 
We certainly can seek to be stewards of what God has given to us and ask God for any of those things in our small corner of the world. You know, God, give me a a, a descendancy, a a goodly heritage. May I pass it down and see my children's children, even great-grandchildren, if you'd be pleased. We, however, may have to leave houses and lands and family as part of the gospel, right? Jesus pronounced a blessing on people who have to do that, either because their family doesn't want them anymore or because they go off and they do something for God, missionary work, say, and they will receive a hundredfold, he says, now in this time and in the age to come. So we're not promised the same kind of blessing that Isaac was promised, but we can trust God to give the blessings uh, that he sees fit. Now, again, God told Isaac not to go to Egypt. Instead, trust in the Lord to provide for you in the promised land. Now, going to Egypt, sometimes in the Bible, going to Egypt is done for safety or provision. You remember the angel appeared to Joseph and Mary and said, Arise and take up the young child and flee to Egypt because someone seeks his life. Or uh, God told in, uh, in Genesis 46, uh, Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. There was another famine uh, in Genesis 46, another generation later, and they went down. Why would they go down there? Well, Joseph had already been prepositioned down there by God years earlier, decades earlier, to prepare for this famine that, they, that nobody knew was coming, this seven-year-long famine. And so God said, don't be afraid to go down there. I mean, he, he probably would be afraid to go down there because he remembers, my dad told me, God told him, don't go down there. So God re- reiterates to him, we'll come to that in 46, yet yeah, it's okay this time to go down there. But often and other times in Scripture, going down to Egypt or relying upon Egypt was a sign of disobedience and distrust in the Lord. In uh, Isaiah chapter 30, let's turn there because this, this is a principle that I want you to cement in your mind. And I'm going to use a, a bit of figurative language in a moment here that's going to be based on this. In Isaiah chapter 30, It says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not from me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. He says, Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. Listen, I just thought of this just now. Anybody who trusts in the Lord, or let's say it this way, no one who trusts in the Lord will be put to shame. That's New Testament scripture, right? And that's from Old Testament as well. You don't trust in the Lord, you trust in Egypt, you trust in their power, that will be your humiliation. Or Isaiah 31, just one chapter forward. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. 
These texts criticize Israel because Israel was trusting in political power, military power, men, of course, the arm of flesh, not the arm of God. God was going to go after them in chastisement. He said to those who in Jeremiah went to Jeremiah and asked, shall we go down to Egypt? They asked deceptively. They intended to go down the whole time, but they kind of made appearance like, hey, we're uh, going to ask of, God, of the man of God and see what he says. But God says, you go down to Egypt, I'm going to chase you down there, and I'm going to take care of you down there. You're going to have problems. Jeremiah 30, verse number uh, 18. Uh, Jeremiah 36, actually, uh, is another one. This several times in the scriptures. Let's see what Jeremiah 36, 6 says. Um, I must, have a, uh, I must have a wrong address here. Well, in any case, it says that some of the people of Israel trusted in Egypt, which is much different than them trusting in the Lord. In Jeremiah 42 and verse number 14, they said, No, but we will go to the land of Egypt, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread. There we will dwell. Yeah, isn't that the case? We'll go back to Egypt where they have all the food that we need. Then hear now the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. Why? Because they're disobeying God's express, explicit command for them not to do what they were doing. I was in Jeremiah, it was in Isaiah 36, 6, actually. It says this, Look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Those are the words of an ungodly man named Sennacherib, a Syrian fellow. So the Bible is very clear that trusting in Egypt Trusting in man, trusting in politics, trusting in armies, in power, in financial might, that's not trusting in God. So if you're, if you're instructed to go down to Egypt for safety, preservation, that's one thing. But if you're told to stay away from Egypt, and that's really the emphasis that I'm making this morning, God is telling Isaac that staying close to him, staying in the land to receive a blessing is the way to be. What about us? We don't have, I know, specific instruction to stay in the land, and we might decide to move from our home to another one or move from Michigan to another state or something like that. That's not the issue. Do we trust in Egypt in our lives? Do we trust in the world instead of in God? Do we look to things, to people, to worldly situations, to humanistic philosophy? Do we look to money to solve our problems, or do we go to God? That was a great message this morning that James shared, reminding us in James 14, 4.14 that uh, we're not to say, look, I'm going to go here and do this and do that and make a buck and uh, everything will be well. No, you say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If the Lord wills, because your life is a vapor. It may disappear before tomorrow comes. Before the day is out, it may be gone. Don't go down to Egypt. And so when you think about your life, think about 
Am I looking to Egypt for my, my counsel? Uh, am I looking to secular whatever for my advice? You know, uh, do I <laughs> go to Google to find all my answers? Be careful, my friends. There's information there, but there is ungodliness abounding there. You go to chat GPT for your AI fix. You know, you know that's a collection of human wisdom. Very cleverly uh, put together and uh, programmed and, you know, hats off to the computer programmers that worked on that. Very skillful. But it only comes from man's wisdom. It doesn't come from God. So you have to be wary of what you see and hear there. Let's go on in uh, Genesis, back to Genesis 26. I've had you scattered all over the Bible there, but back to the beginning. In 26, in verses, uh, verse uh, number 6, we said Isaac dwelled in Gerar. Next section now, the next movement of the play, if you will, the actual history, the next scene. And the men of the place asked about his wife. Uh-oh. What should he have said? Yeah, this is my wife. She's a beautiful wife. I like her a lot. You know, don't mess with her. What's he say? She's my sister. Oh, no, not again. For he was afraid to say she's my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window. And saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Uh-oh, cover blown. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she's your wife, so how could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. Now that's interesting to me, that a, a godless king, would know that it's not appropriate to touch another man's wife. I wish we had some more Abimelechs around here these days. You know, I'll take it. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Whoa, I'll second what I just said there. Man, this guy's tough. He's not messing around at all. He's saying, look, if you mess with this guy or his wife, but Isaac repeated the sinful pattern of his father in lying about his wife. He was afraid that the Philistines would take his wife from him, so he lied. Do you think that that was impacted by past pattern of his family? The bad example of his father affected him? Well, you might astutely observe that those two times in which it happened, Genesis 12 and 20, happened before chapter 21 when Isaac was born. But you know, your past history has a stubborn way of coming up sometimes. Have your kids ever heard about some things that you ought not to have been involved in when you were their age? And they might use that against you or say, well, if mom and dad got away with it, I can do it. Sometimes those old stories come back to haunt us, don't they? And the kids learn it. Of course, that's sinful reasoning on their part. You know, like, they got away with bad things, so I'm going to get away with bad things. 
No, I mean, actually, it may be worse. If you stumbled into it because you were a fool and God spared you from it, that's one thing. But if you go into it knowingly, say, say before you're saved, you got into things. Well, of course, you're going to do dumb stuff. But if you're professing faith in the Lord and then you say, well, I can sow my wildness. Nobody's not going to matter. God will forgive me. You're going into it with a much different motivation than what maybe your parents did. So don't feel justified in doing those things. Listen to wisdom. Children sin independent of their parents because of their sin nature, but they can and do learn your bad patterns and priorities and habits. And they learn them almost by osmosis, don't they? You don't have to sit down in front of a chalkboard and teach them all the lessons about how you live your life because they're seeing it every day. They're seeing how you live. Well, that's the way we did things. That's that's just how I grew up. It didn't seem very bad, you know, it was just normal. You know, it seems possible to me that it's easier for our kids to learn our bad habits than our good ones. Why? Because they come out as sinners when they're born. And that nature is very strong. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, the scripture says, and so consequently, we have to resolve to live and lead our families in the way of righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, the Bible says, and protect yourself and help your kids to start out well. Okay, Less foolishness, more righteousness. Now, years ago, I wrote a set of notes on Genesis that I taught through at some point, and this was back in uh, 2006, and I said this about this section. I said, Isaac repeated the mistake of his father. That's true, but allow me to argue with my younger version of myself and remind us that the word mistake is not the right word. He did more than a mistake because sin is more than a mistake. Making a mistake is one thing. And, and sometimes people say, you know, I blew it. Well, and, and some, to many people, that just means I made a big-sized mistake. You know, I just biggie-sized it. Uh, I blew this opportunity. I, uh, I made a mistake. But sinning is far worse than that. You know, when, you do, uh, when you're learning math and you're in your math class, you can make a mistake on a math problem. Now, I don't think that's sin to make a mistake on a math problem. Now, it might be related to sin, like, you know, if your teacher is teaching and you're just doing this and, you know, looking out the window and all that, you're not paying attention. I, I grant that, okay? But if you're honestly working at it and you make a numerical mistake or things don't line up properly and the decimal point gets in the wrong spot or whatever, that's a problem of our finiteness. That's not a problem of sin. You might miss some great opportunity in your life. You know, the door's closed now, but if you had walked through that door, you would have been whatever in some great situation. That's not a sin. That's shortcomings of finiteness, maybe affected by sinfulness if you're too lazy to learn or weren't in tune with God's wisdom. But sin is far worse. We offend in sin, we offend God's holiness. We put ourselves further into a debt-like situation with God. We add to our rap sheet. 
are crimes against deity and humanity. There's no remedy for this outside of a substitution of a perfect, sinless life for a sinful life. Perfect life for sinful life is how I said it, hyphenated in my notes there. But my point in all this is to remind us that sin is sin. It's not merely a mistake. It's bad. It's far more than a mere mistake. And so I want you to get in tune with calling sin what it is. Don't just say, I made a mistake to kind of gloss over it. If you sinned, you sinned. Admit it, confess it, repent of it. God will cleanse you from that. He'll cleanse us from all sin. He doesn't have to cleanse us from our mistakes and our math homework. You just have to go back and erase and redo or whatever. But can't do that with life. When you sin, it's a bad situation, very bad situation. In this case, the sin is like this. Isaac, he, he saw the situation. He lacked faith. He lived in fear. He used his wife as a human shield. And he deceived others to protect himself. Okay, I've listed four pretty serious things here. But he didn't, he lacked faith in God. Not just faith in faith, faith in the vacuum, a leap of faith into the dark. He lacked faith in God because God had just told him. What did he say to him? He said, I dwell in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you. Your descendants, I'll give all these lands. I'll make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. Man, when God's on your side and he gives you that sort of promise, what, how, can you, how can you go wrong? They're asking me about my wife. And God's told me to stay here, and he'll be with me. I can say with the righteous, I can be as bold as a lion. I don't have to be afraid. Just say the truth. He should have been a man and protected his wife. He should have lived in faith instead of fear. Instead, survival was more important to him than fidelity to God. Survival was more important than fidelity to God. I was thinking about that this week. Uh, The best thing to do is to live and obey God. The next thing, the next best thing is to die in obedience to God. Worse than that is to live in disobedience to God. Can I, can I put those two right next to each other? It's far better for us to die in obedience than to live in disobedience. You say, well, that sounds kind of weird, Pastor. That's true. Because our ultimate goal is not to please ourselves, is it? It's to please God. So better to, to die in obedience than to live in disobedience. And, of course, the worst on that scale is to die in disobedience. All I did is I took life and death and disobedience and obedience that put all four combinations together. And I'm saying to you, living in obedience is the best. But if you can't, then die in obedience as well. If God ordains that because of my wife, I get knocked off, that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop being faithful to God. Okay, I'm going to do what I can to be faithful to God. Well, Isaac was found out when he was caught in a little PDA with his wife. A public display of affection. What's that? 
Did you not know what that was? You're a turkey. <laughs> oh, you never heard of it before. I'm sorry for using acronyms that don't have clear meaning. You didn't either. Is it just the younger generations that know this? That must be what it is. I don't know up to what age. Anyway, so uh, it's not, by, the, by the way, there's nothing wrong with showing a little of that PDA to your spouse. People ought to know that you're married. You know, hold hands once in a while or give each other a kiss. In fact, people and your children should see that you love one another and that you live like you're married. Give, a, give your children a wholesome view of what married love looks like because they're getting a bunch of garbage in the world about what love looks like. Show them the way. Show them the way. Better than society. Anyway, okay, show, showing your wife, but you know when you've lied and then you do, oh, it just makes a mess, right? So Isaac eventually stayed in the land, but he got away from God when he played this trick on Abimelech, and it didn't pay off. His distrust led to deceit toward others, and then this pattern itself was reused by none other than his son, Jacob. Remember? The deceiver, the supplanter. I was interested, too, to note, and I alluded to this earlier, that God induced the pagan king, Abimelech, to issue a very harsh penalty for anyone who messed with Isaac or Rebekah. God was protecting his people using a pagan king. See uh, Psalm 105 here. Let me just share with you uh, quickly this little section. Psalm 105, long section. Um, it says in 105 verse 8, he remembers his covenant uh, forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment for your inheritance, when they were few in number, indeed a very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. He talks about him calling for a famine and all of that sort of stuff. This, uh, this idea that God used somebody who was an unbeliever to protect his people makes me think of Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus was used by God to help the people of Israel. Sorry for calling you a turkey, brother. I shouldn't have done that. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, I, I was thinking of this because when I was in early elementary school, I was sometime picked on by people. I was maybe first grade or second grade, but I had a very big fifth grade friend, not a believer at all, but he was looking out for me. It is good to know bigger people when you're getting picked on in school. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's good for, for, uh, for him to know, Isaac, to know this king and the king to stick up for him, so to speak. Look at verse 12 to 14. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous 
for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. So if you plant, uh, have you ever thought about planting um, what kind of yield you might get? It seems to me it's a wonderful investment when you put a seed in the ground and up comes a whole bunch more stuff. If you plant a seed of corn in the ground and you get a plant that has one ear on it, the corn plants have more than one ear on them ever. They have two ears on them. But if it had just one good ear on it, it could yield anywhere from 500 to 1,200 kernels of corn. Average about 800. I looked this up. One turns to 800? That's a pretty good investment, wouldn't you say? Of course, there are expenses involved in buying the corn, planting it, and fertilizing it, picking it, and all that sort of stuff. But back in the day before genetic engineering and uh, whatever this is, GMO stuff and all that, Isaac received a very good crop, a hundredfold larger than he had planted. So the Lord blessed him, and he was very prosperous. But this led to trials. The trials of those who are blessed by God, verse 15. Now the Philistines, so the Philistines envied him. Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we are. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of water, found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with them, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek. That means quarreling because they quarreled with him. And they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. Sitna, enmity. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over that one. So he called its name Rehoboth because he said, Now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So that name Rehoboth, you might know it from Rehoboth Beach in Delaware or something, but it means spaciousness. A broad space has been provided for him. So then he went up from there to Beersheba, and two more verses. The Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am God. The God of your father Abraham, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. You know, water is a life and death matter. If you don't have water, you're in a problem. They wanted to halt Abraham and Isaac's progress, and so they stopped up these wells, filled them with dirt, rocks, earth, tried to stop them from getting water out of them. You know, it just it's one of these things that's bothersome to me when you think about people who destroy things. Just destructive. Why? What's the point of it? What a waste the action is. And you can tell a lot about a person if they are a destroyer instead of a builder, if they are a thief instead of a giver, if they're respectful of other people's property or not. Destroying things that belong to other people is theft. You're stealing their labor. You're stealing the good that they could get out of that thing which they have built or done. 
you know, you see it today. People who destroy things, even in their own country, and then they wonder why they're poor. Because they're not the kind of person that is a building kind of person. They're the destructive, maybe entitlement mentality kind of person. That's not going to get you anywhere. You destroy other people's things. You mob a store and steal all of their stuff. Do you think that's going to prosper you? You think you're going to stand before God and that's going to turn out well? The mindset of destructiveness, probably connected to this entitlement mindset, tells on your character because it shows you're not a hard worker, you don't care about others. It's just it's basically being like a loser. You're not obeying God at all. You're, you're following Satan. So, but how do you respond to something like this if somebody stops up your well? Putting wells in, by the way, is kind of an expensive business, isn't it? Have any of you had to put in a well at your home? Call up Cribbly or whoever it is, and they dig down there hundreds of, hopefully not hundreds of feet, 50 feet, 60 feet, 120 feet. And uh, you're hoping to hit water soon because I think they charge by the foot or something, don't they? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So uh, we read more information here about how Isaac had to dig several wells before getting one at which he had uncontested water rights. But he didn't fight about it. Do you notice how he did this? He just went, he moved a little bit, he dug one. They fought about that, so he moved a little bit, dug one, fought about that, found another spot, dug one there. I mean, this is a lot of work for his poor servants. He's like, okay, guys, we've got to do this a third time now. Yeah. So they left him alone finally. But I, a God repeated the Abrahamic promises to Isaac um, just because Isaac had problems doesn't mean that God left him. Notice God reiterated the promise. He said, do not fear, I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply you. Isaac reacted like his father did in that situation. Did you see that in verse number 20? uh, Which verse is it? 25. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. What a blessing. He worshiped God. Likewise, in view of all the favor that God has shown to you, do you worship God? You get on your knees sometimes and just say, thank you, God. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for providing all that you have for the family that you have, all of that. I hope so. We don't build altars today. We don't even have an altar. This isn't an altar. There's no more offerings to be made. There's only been one final offering made in person and work of Christ. But we come to him and we confess our sins and we can give him thanks for the blessings that he has given to us. So now, just a few other notes here. Uh, we have some relief from the trials. The king of the Philistines named Abimelech in verses 26 to 33 comes and makes a covenant with uh, Isaac. You know, he says, look, let's be kind of friendly towards one another. You know, So this turned out to be a parody covenant, not a suzerainty or sovereignty, a vassal kind of arrangement there two peers making a covenant not to harm one another. And then Isaac dwelt there at Beersheba, which is called the well of the oath. The well of the oath. And that was that way also from his father. An oath was made there also. 
But let's look at verses 34 and 35 and just close out our chapter with this. So um, when Esau, their son, was 40 years old, it says he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Of all the trials that they had, this was the worst. This was the most difficult. It doesn't say that digging another well was a grief of mind. I mean, it's probably a grief. It was a pain in the neck. But this is especially noted as a grief to them. The older twin married two Hittite women. And the parents were upset about this. But notice, I'm going to say this, think on good grounds, they're not just upset because they're Hittites. If that were the case, then the parents would be charged with what sin? Basically, racism. We don't like Hittites. That's not the issue. The issue is, because there's only one human race, they are not multiple races. Oh, yes, we could say there are multiple ethnic backgrounds or whatever, but they're not racists. The real reason was that the young women came from pagan idolatry. Maybe, too, there were two of them instead of one of them. You know, there should have only been one wife, but two of them and pagan idolatrous backgrounds. They weren't worshipers of the true God, evidently. And they broken the family pattern set by Isaac and Rebekah under Abraham's leadership. Go and find somebody from our extended family like believes like us, that is like us, and go marry them but not these pagans around here. Apparently, however, Esau was a man who didn't want to follow his parents. Strange, because it worked out pretty well for his parents, didn't it? To have one husband, one wife, to be married a long time. They had, you know, the children. But it says this was a grief of mind. This is a burden. This is a heavy stone. This is a stress, because... This is more than just an offspring doing a boneheaded thing. It was that, but it was more than that. This was kind of a personal thing. Their son had rejected not only the parents' standard, but in some sense he had rejected the parents themselves. Does that make sense? Oh, don't take it personally, Mom and Dad. It's kind of a little hard to not. So troubling was this to Rebekah, look at 27, chapter 27, 46. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. I'll just say, we'll say that she's suffering from some deep depression here because of what has happened in their lives. If Jacob takes a wife of one of the daughters of Heth, like those who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Like everything you live for, you try to help your children, the young people to come up and do the right thing, that's like top priority. And when that doesn't happen, what then? How do you feel about it? He was holding their wisdom at arm's length, holding them at arm's length, And this was just a real grief for them. May you not experience that grief. Parents, 
young people here who will be parents someday, you don't know yet the grief that comes with this kind of thing in your life. But in Abraham and Isaac, all the families of the earth will be blessed, God said. This applies to us because Galatians 3 says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached to Abraham, the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all of the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And might I add, and with Isaac as well, okay, with believing Isaac. Isaac's faith did waver a little bit from time to time, but I bet that he's no more guilty of that than you and I, right? But God was still with him, and God will still be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to look at the Word today. Oh, may may it be an encouragement to us. May we remember not to run to Egypt for the source of our help and strength. May we not neglect the wisdom of our elders. May we not uh, lie and, and um, deceive in order to cover up our lack of faith and, and trust in you. Lord, help us to walk together with you. Guide us, I pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.